Welcome back to another episode of State of the Art, the podcast that sits at the intersection of art and technology. Where is that intersection, by the way? I'm still trying to find it, but it's always described as an intersection. Anyways, uh, you can always follow us at State of the Art on Instagram or Twitter, or you can send me an email at gabe at thestateoftheart.org. I'll try and read those emails or pick one each week to respond to. Speaking of which, this week, Angela P. asks, do you ever feel overwhelmed by the amount of art on Instagram? Um, how could you not feel overwhelmed by the amount of art on Instagram? It seems like everyone I know creates an artwork every 30 seconds. For me, it's tricky because I take sometimes up to like three months to produce one work of art. Uh, just I have to think about things and then there's a lot of programming and design and development that goes into it. And so I'm not someone that shares things all the time. Uh, and I definitely have a, a sense of FOMO for that because <laughs> I see people just uh, cranking out work and, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, I should be doing that too. But I would, I would suggest that you kind of hold true to your own style of work if you can. Um, maybe just put some photos of you working on stuff or what you're thinking if you feel like you need to update constantly. Or if you don't want to update at all, I think that's totally fine too. There's other ways to get your work out in the world. So Angela, you know, try not to be too overwhelmed by Instagram um, and take a little break if you need to also. Uh, I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Dan Goods. Uh, if you haven't heard it yet, it's an amazing episode. Dan talks about a project where he drilled a hole into a grain of sand to represent our time and space in the universe. Um, and I, I just really loved the way uh, the conversation went. And we're actually kind of continuing on with this concept of representing giant astronomical themes through art and installation this week. We have an artist named Maya Petrich. Maya, uh, don't call her a light artist, but she does work with light. Uh, we're going to talk about why she doesn't want to be known as a light artist. Um, her installations that involve fog, giant light fields, uh, basically putting yourself into a place in the universe as well uh, through these light installations. Uh, we also talk about being an artist and sort of the demands of that and how it's changed over the years. So it's a really fun episode uh, and we'll start it off right now. So let's welcome Maya to the podcast. Maya Petrich, thanks for being here. Hi. <laughs> yes, I'm very happy to talk to you. So maybe we could start with your background. Um, I know that your work began as site-specific public art performances. Uh, can you tell us about that period of your life? Yeah, I, I think my fascination with performance began in preschool when I started taking dancing classes. And I continued doing that long into my college years. But then during my high school, I discovered theater and especially physical theater. Uh, I had this exceptional drama teacher and she had a very specific view on theater. And I was very, very engaged with that. Um, and I think I was also attracted to the notion of storytelling through one's physicality and movement, but also the nonlinear nature of these performative narratives. They were all somewhat postmodern in their format, and that always seemed compelling to me. And what kind, of, what kind of physical theater were you doing at the time? Uh, well, it was... Uh, what I started doing was uh, experimentations in this drama class with a teacher who, uh, just a very sophisticated person who uh, would be doing a lot of like classics like Chekhov and Shakespeare. But then we would be reading this material and trying to understand it and then express it through a movement. And um, I, I consider it more of a, it has nothing to do with mime. It has to do more with 
um, I think, abstracting the narrative in a way and um, creating a narrative through your own body and then presenting it in a way that you can feel it in your body as an audience. Uh, that, that's how I would describe it. But um, yeah, the, 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 the straightforward definition for physical theater is like using your body and movement to really tell a story. But um, that sounds to me a lot like mime and it has nothing to do with that. <laughs> so definitely not uh, mimes. Yeah. Uh, how, did yeah. This, how did this physical theater sort of lead to your involvement in the art and tech world then? Uh, well, I, I was so into trying to understand it and unpack it. And I, uh, so that led me to under, like studies of Richard Schachner's environmental theater which was also physical, it's a form of physical theater in a way and a performance art that um, kind of uh, um, erases the boundaries between the audience and, uh, and the performers and the space, I think. So I became interested in that type of, uh, I would say art experience through form of theater where you're using all the mediums to create a story. and, and a, and our audience is an active member. So I started um, in college uh, a group, like a, a physical theater company with a, one exceptional um, uh, modern dancer that I met at the college. And we would be doing this type of theater pieces uh, yeah, at outdoor locations. So they were also site-specific. Um, and um, during my senior year um, of studying in Croatia, where I'm from, um, I got a scholarship to study for a year in U.S. So I came and I studied art. And I really wanted to keep on working with my friend. But um, there was this geographical distance that was hard to overcome in when you were doing, you know, physical theater. So I decided to learn about video and uh, do a form of teleperformance where we are performing together but it is you know done through uh, telecommunications and i had not i didn't know anything about new media and i didn't know anything about teleperformance there was not much to know at that time it was 2001 um but it just made sense to me and very soon after i discovered that um, I wasn't that much into theater itself. I was more into creating these experiences. And I, I wasn't that good of a performer, so <laughs> I could do it much better with this new media. And new media could allow me to do more things. What was it about the new media that would allow you to do more things? Sometimes I feel like, you know, theatrical directors are frustrated by new media, but it seems like for you, you embraced it. Because they don't understand the possibility of it. And for me, it just meant um, I could perform in New York against the wall and my partner could perform against the wall in Croatia and we could record ourselves in our respective places and project each other's, you know, uh, performances on each other's wall and so interact and to me that was like I had this common sense type of view of technology it's very pragmatic 
um, utilitarian. So I was like, yeah, well, I, I will use that. That's a tool that can fix some things. And um, uh, that's my approach to, to new media to this day. <laughs> so this yeah. was a networked performance. It was what kind of kicked it off for you between you and yeah. your partner. Yeah, it ended up being more of a video art thing that we where we combine all these things. But yes, that was that was the seed. And um, from there, I I I went into ITP, which is a master program at NYU dedicated to. Um, how would you describe it? <laughs> I don't know. There's been a lot of guests on the show from ITP. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's it's very hard to describe. It's just a, a wacky place where people experiment with art and technology, sort yeah. of like a so, you know Willy Wonka kind of place almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I came there to do exactly that, and uh, again, I had this very commonsensical um, curiosity about what can you do about these different with these different tools. To create like a total work of theater art experience, Gesundkunstwerk, I don't know, you know, <laughs> like just create something multisensory that can be transformative. Um, and um, yeah, that, that's what I did. And so when did your interest in light specifically as a creative medium uh, emerge? Like you were working with projection, but when did you make the jump to just working formally with light itself? I never made a jump to working only with light. I only made it a point to say light is a big deal. And <laughs> then it turned out like there was a discovery, light is a big deal. But I think if you're working with projection, light is a big deal. If you're working with a visual art, light is a big deal. So I discovered that at ITP, actually, because there I was experimenting with many different um, technologies. And um, it was all aimed at transforming the experience of the space or transforming the experience people have in, in a space and in so transforming the, the space. And I, and I quickly realized that every space has light and I, in, no matter, you know, what's happening, that experience, that space is shaped by that light, you know, and if you were to, to craft the light, you could impact the experience and, um, so at ITP, I really became interested in it and, and really, um, started researching how I can depict a story, convey message, evoke sensations by, by, by do, by using light as, um, as a key, uh, element. And, um, uh, as a result, I, I did, um, um, installation, um, my thesis was uh, this project called Outside In, and uh, it was an um, um, interactive light art installation for New York City subway uh, for the pedestrian tunnel at the 191st Street. Uh, you might know that very, very long tunnel, mm -hmm. um, and it's quite deep, and for the longest time, the... Um, a subway, the MTA didn't want to clean it because it was owned by the city and it was known all as a tunnel of doom. It was pretty desolate. Um, so I um, imagined a piece that entails a false ceiling that appears to be cracked in this tunnel. 
and it's a and um, it would also use a combination of artificial light and fog to simulate the striking natural effect of light emanating from the sky, much like um, so-called God's light uh, that we see through the clouds. Uh, and the light was programmed to imitate the color and intensity of the daylight outside of the tunnel. So when the weather was very sunny, the light projected inside through the cracks would be bright and yellow. And when the weather outside was foggy, the light shining over passersby would be soft and blue. And, and so I was really learning how we perceive light, what's the effect of light on us, and how can I manipulate it to create an experience and, and change the experience of the entire tunnel known as the tunnel of doom as this with this small intervention that might be asking for like an unexpected contemplation on something much more blissful than the space was really providing. Yeah, I like it so that you're sort of cracking this tunnel open and exposing the outside world within it. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because the tunnel is very, very deep and they use it, um, they used to use it, I don't know if this is still the case, um, for uh, astronomy studies at uh, NYU. Uh, they, I don't know, they, I think, well, I'm not going to say more. I'm not sure. I don't remember what they, what they do. There. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, they would do some kind of studies because the tunnel was so long that it was like yeah, a yeah, scientific yeah, yeah, yeah. place? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. In the yes. tunnel of and doom. Deep, yeah, yeah. And so did you there install this in the actual tunnel or was this more of like a plan to install it? So I did the mock-up, and but it was never really... So it was in the space where I tested the idea, and and but it was never there officially. <laughs> um, it's just... It was. I don't know what's the situation now, but at that time... 15 years ago, almost, it was very hard to have anything electrical in the subway that was not from the subway itself. Oh, yeah. I've been on panels before for the MTA where we're trying to pick yeah. artwork and they can't pick any light art that has red or green signals to put in the subway because people are driving yeah. the trains. Uh, it's, yeah, it's kind of fascinating. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. you make this piece and then from there, are you now a light artist then? Is, I mean, do you call your work light art now? I have a very complicated relationship towards that term. Uh, I wish we didn't have to call anything by the, I don't know, the, 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 the medium that one uses. Um, as much as I use light, I also use, you know, technology and sound. So I don't only use light, but I feel like I need to advocate for light. So I kind of talk about it a lot and I put a lot of uh, emphasis on it. But I think, I wish we could just say we do art. <laughs> yeah. And that we don't need any distinction between new media, um, light art, like not even because when you look, I, I really believe that music, painting, performance, if it's at, a, and at, at the level of being true art, it's all trying to do the same thing. And uh, sometimes putting these labels, um, I think, put a lot of focus on the tool that is really just 
pure mechanics of to deliver something that is supposed to be the point. Um, so I say I use light in art <laughs> instead of, instead of uh, saying I'm a light artist. But um, yeah, yeah, I have very mixed feelings. In a way, I want to advocate for it. But uh, on the other hand, um, yeah, I, I, I find it also problematic. And, and another side to it is that there's so many things that are called light art these days that I don't think have anything to do with art. Um, and um, what's an example of something like that? I'm just curious. <laughs> what's it? I can tell you what what's example of light good good art that uses light that I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we can focus on that. There's so many examples. I mean, there are light art festivals now in popping up in every city that have nothing to do with art. They're just this uh, entertainment parks that use uh, LEDs, and it, you know it's fun and and we need uh, blockbuster cinema to entertain us. But is it a profound movie? You know, it's not. Like it's so. Um, I. I think it also confuses, like there's so much misconceptions, I think, about what art is and how and people are a little bit scared to even try to, un, you know, unpack it, uh, that uh, I think this just adds to the confusion. When does and, a piece in your mind sort of cross over or, or what, what's the distinction in your mind about when we would classify a piece as an artwork? Versus this entertainment that you're talking about. It's something that I think about a lot. <laughs> I'm very... Um, um, I think all art uh, is trying to provide a unique transformative experience that could be... Or it could be like a transformative idea or uh, emotion. But it, it should it should deliver at least some of that. Uh, and if it's not, and this is just, a, this is very simplistic explanation, but if it's not doing that, uh, and if it's derivative, I think also, um, because I believe that art needs to be unique in some way, um, I, I don't think it's art. It could be exercise in design, not to, not to say the design is inferior to art, it's just something else. Um, it could be many different things. It could be entertainment, which again, it's a legitimate thing, but it's just not art. Um, and um, it's so hard to define. And uh, I, 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 yeah. But I think, yeah, we need to, we need, we need to be looking for ways to define it, um, at least through examples, because. Uh, it's not clear enough. No, I think we're in a very interesting time right now where, yeah. you know, I, I teach uh, and my students are always making projects. And sometimes I ask them why they made it and they aren't really able to um, articulate why that is, which I think is fine when you're a student. But when yeah. you're starting to make projects afterwards, you know, having an intent or a concept is so important that you want to deliver. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. I do see a lot of pieces now that are just like, well, the intent is a good photo or, <laughs> or, uh, you know, a, a fun interaction. And I, I wonder, you know, if that classifies as art in the end, if, if it's being presented in these art festivals. No, too. it doesn't. 
to me that's very clear. It doesn't. And and I I also was teaching for for some time, and uh, we even have these um, discussions about art and students who say, well, art is art if I say it's art. Like this piece of paper, I think it's art. <laughs> so it's art. It's like it's been so uh, um, misconstrued through, I think, uh, unfortunate interpretation of, you know, conceptual art history and um, and also lack of education, I think. Well, we can also and, blame Marcel Duchamp for some of this as well. But I don't... <laughs> I blame every all the derivative art that comes after him. Yeah. I, I don't blame him. And so you can blame, you know, the first white painting and Rosenberg and all. I mean, the whole movement was, I mean, this is critical art for that time. But everything else, but all the derivative stuff that came after that, I believe it's not art because part of the artistic merit in those pieces is that they were, breaking the ground, they were um, creating shifts in our points of view about the world around us and the art itself. Um, that cannot be repeated. The, the part of that was that it was, you know, the first one. Do you think that us. that's a, an issue with, I guess, what we're calling tech art or art made with technology too, that it didn't have respect for many years, right? Like people were not considering yeah. it artwork and wouldn't put it in galleries or didn't think it could sell like, you know, painting or sculpture. But yeah. now do you think we're at a point where it's more accepted? And so you're seeing what, you know, what you're referring to as derivative work um, more often? I think it's going in both directions. I think now more than ever, like there, I, there's a lot of work that is being produced um, that is using new media and that calls itself art. And I don't think many of those examples are good art or art at all. Um, and uh, I also think there is more amazing new media art than ever because there is so much work that is being produced. Um, and that is incredible. And I think that they will stand the test of time. Um, and so we don't need to worry if we are a little bit patient. Uh, but at the same time, I think because of this overproduction of that kind of work, you now, and also business appetite for that type of work. Right. Like now you have all these museums and galleries and, uh, I don't know, things like ice cream museum and selfie museums that call themselves museums <laughs> and <laughs> art art exhibits that have nothing to do with art. And they are kind of trivializing in some ways among the mainstream audiences what the true art is. At the same time, uh, and they're also making money out of people's interest in actual art using that 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 medium right it might um, be what we get used to when we talk about yeah. museums it's like oh those those are like selfie pop-ups that's a museum right um, but i mean i i think it's the same as you know what we have now with these decor paintings that you can buy in ikea or wherever like you don't consider the art you just buy that 
well, I don't buy them, but some people buy them not to have an art piece, but to have a specific, you know, decor in, in their apartment, in their house. And I think those so-called museums, so-called experiences will be understood as such at one point. But I don't think we are there because it's so new and we still we are so confused about art in the first place because defining it is not as straightforward as any other discipline. And also, we don't know enough. It's, it's also super complex discipline because there is so much into, go, goes into it. Uh, then it's it's hard, I think, to unpack. But yeah, I think people like you and who teach about it and do very interesting work will be clearly, you know, uh, an example of what matters. Well, I want to talk about some of your pieces <laughs> specifically. No, let's talk about yours. Let's talk about art. So let's talk about uh, We Are All Made of Light. Like, how would you describe mm-hmm. this piece to somebody who's never seen it before? Mm. Yeah, so all my work is very exper- experiential, so it's it's hard to describe it. It's even hard to understand it through images and videos, but I guess easier uh, than me talking about it, but I will <laughs> do my best. Um, so it's a large-scale installation that usually occupies between, I don't know, 1,500 square feet to 3,000 square feet. And it's situated in a blacked out space. Um, and it, it is about interconnectedness and it utilizes interactive light, spatial sound and artificial intelligence to emulate the constellation in which every person who visits the piece becomes one among the stars. Um, and um, the light and projection is used to... Um, evoke um, the natural beauty of the universe and the the trivial connections between us and all of the living things that usually stay hidden in the plain sight. And as the visitor moves through this space um, that is filled with threads on which I'm projecting, so basically you just see like light uh, throughout the space. Um, So it's kind of almost a volumetric light experience uh, in the in the in the dark space um, um, the, it, that is uh, depicting a constellation and uh, each visitor um, um, is um, kind of becoming part of this galaxy of stars because we are recognizing them in space and then we project their silhouette into the the, the larger galaxy um, and the silhouette is also pretty abstract. You, you can recognize yourself, but you're made of stars. Um, and uh, each person is leaving light trails of their presence across the starscape. And once the visitor leaves, their trails of light remain in the constellation and are added to the collection of trails that others have left behind. So with every new visit, the number of light trails increases and um, increases reflects the growing history of the space. And each new person visiting the space is immersed in starscapes filled with light that marks their presence, but also presence of people who were there in the past. So uh, and so it's like connecting us with people from the past and even indicating our connection with 
people who will come in the future. And it's trying to raise awareness among visitors about traces that their present lives in the space and the time that they, in, uh, they inhabit in the space. So it asks everybody to consider in a way what has been immersed in the mesh of trails lend us to understand, think of each other and our collective legacy. And the piece, it looks like a galaxy in a room. <laughs> how does that? Yeah. How is that working? Like, it, is it thousands of strands that are being projected onto that creates this yeah. star field? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's this completely pitch dark space in which uh, I did, in which I hang thousands of of threads, and uh, they're black threads, so you don't really see them. Uh, and they have some silver snippets, and I'm projecting on them. Um, and I'm projecting um, visual content that I created to kind of be an impressionistic version of a galaxy. Um, this came out of my previous work um, with uh, light and fog, and I'm very interested in, in um, almost having a sculptural light, like, surrounding people, wrapping around them. And that's really easily done with, with light projected into the fog because it, the fog particles are kind of visualizing light and create these sculptures that feel almost tangible, they, but they are made of, made of light. But I couldn't, in the, 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 uh, when I was doing this piece the first time, we were all made of light, I couldn't use fog. So I thought, well, what can I do that is not a particle, atmospheric particle? And that's why I thought of these threads that would kind of catch the light throughout the space and create this volumetric, you know, experience without, um, yeah, but, but they're black, so you don't really see them. Like, you, you don't really, when you're in the space, your eye focuses on light, which is really just these particles, uh, that are reflected out of the of the silver snippets on the black threads. How do you come up with? The, I mean, how do you conceptualize a uh, project like this? Do you do drawings before, or do you do, do you have to do a small scale mock up of it? I'm just curious because it's a fairly I've, abstract visual that comes out. Um, I, I don't know how. Like to me, I, I just came across this idea be, intuitively, I guess, <laughs> because of this previous work that I did um, with. Um, um, project the high intensity pro projection in, in fog filled spaces, and I've wanted the same effect, you know. And to me, it just made sense because I I've been working so much with light that I understand how it behaves. So I was like, okay, I need something that fills the space that is almost like a particle, you know, um, and tiny and can reflect back the light. So. Uh, to me, it like came very easy that idea, and I was convinced in it. Uh, I told it to my collaborators and to people who commissioned me, and they all looked at me blankly. They, they're like, "I guess you know what you're talking about." <laughs> right, there's some faith they have to have in you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they had faith, but it really was out there for them. But to me, it just made complete sense, and. And once I actually, you know, I did the mock-up in my studio, pretty large-scale mock-up, uh, and then I was like, you see? <laughs> <It works." laughs> They're like, okay, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it yeah, does yeah, make sense. Yeah. And how does yeah. the artificial intelligence work? You mentioned that it, it records 
viewers who have uh, visited the the installation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've been working uh, with Mihai Jalobenu uh, on developing this custom AI-driven software that can recognize people in space. It detects their bodies, records their silhouettes, and projects them back into space in the shape of stars. And these are ever-changing stars. It's not just it has this organic feel to it. And the system is programmed uh, to continuously change the look and feel of people's silhouettes, also based on the uh, rest of the content and times activities in space. Uh, and it algorithmically impacts the evolution of the narrative so that the experience like of the galaxy combining the silhouettes is also changing. So all these things are kind of interconnected and they're affecting each other's. And um, so each silhouette is set to appear at later time. Uh, well, not each, most of them. It's not super linear. Uh, it depends also what's happening in the space. Um, um, and also, and, and we do it to connect with the real-time people in space. So, And not always because, um, for instance, it's set to appear when there's not a lot of people in the space, because if there is a lot of people in the space, you couldn't differentiate if it's a just reflection of people or or a silhouette from the past. And for me, it's very important to have this recognition. Oh, there is somebody here who is not actually here, and I'm somehow communing with this like essence of a person that is not here. And that's what interests me. So I, I do this in different ways. So I could visit somebody who maybe saw the installation a day or a week before, or what's the time frame? It's not by your choice. <laughs> it's, uh, I shouldn't tell someone to go and I'll meet them there a week later is what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, that's a great idea. I'm, I am interested in that. Um, uh, no, it's the, the, the first uh, iteration was basically um, looking at uh, so when there would it would it would replace silhouettes of people who were there before, based on number of the people who were in the space actually. So if there was not a lot of people at specific times, uh, the the silhouette from the past would appear, and then um, it the the way it would appear it would also depend where the person in the space was standing. So you could have a similar orientation so if uh, and there's some recognition to it where for instance we can recognize that you're looking towards the right and uh, and you raise your hand or something like that so we could project a person who is not there who is looking towards you raising a hand um, so there is some communion in that sense um, yeah it seems like your work is often about connecting people or connecting people to data or or to other emotions um, and we mentioned fog earlier, but I'd love to talk about I Saw My Birth, Love, and Death in the Sky, which is a very mm -hmm. dramatic title, I think. Can you tell me a little <laughs> bit about how this piece looks and how it came about as well? Yeah, it's, so that one is an interactive light art installation that was made for um, one beautiful forest area in Redmond, uh, next to Seattle in Washington. Um, so it is, it, it is a, an area that is covered by 200 feet tall, tall trees and um, um, we filled the area surrounded with trees with fog and projected stars that 
that were equal in number to the U.S. population. So visitors would pass through the fog-filled forest and they could glance up and find themselves immersed in the constellation of projected stars, which was pretty surreal just because of the, the forest itself. And then having this uh, fog and projection was adding some kind of uh, another magically real element to it. And then whenever a baby was born somewhere in the country, a burst of red light would appear above people. And whenever a person died, blue star would explode and disappear into space. And um, this was um, this was looking into the statistics uh, that UN has made on deaths and births and their extensive research and the data mining and uh, on 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 the data on on the on um, data about births and deaths uh, and and also governmental reports that that we had access to. Um, the numbers are not accurate to the single digit point. It's more of a um, statistical accurate uh, amount of births and deaths. And I think it was pretty close in terms of scale and rate. And in so I, I was interested in how I could use this scientific data to in, to interpret it in an artistic way and in so engage people in what they, what this data actually means. And how did people uh, react to it? I mean, I, I'm picturing walking through this forest and seeing one of these exploding stars and realizing that someone's died. I mean, it seems like it would be <laughs> very intense or somewhat depressing. I don't know if uh, everyone knew what it meant. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty beautiful, so people enjoyed it a lot. Uh, the ones who who did know, um, I believe they were able to engage more deeply with the meaning of of these numbers, you know, of this data. Like so many times, we read about people dying, pe- people being born, people, have, you know, having coronavirus, whatever. Um, and it's hard to really empathize or having deeper feelings about it. And this piece is like trying to evoke the meaning of these numbers and put you in the middle of that. And I, to me, it's not sad. To me, it's it's beautiful. It's like everything is being recycled. And, <laughs> you know, first you're born and then you die and then somebody else is born and so on. And is there challenges with working with fog in an environment like that? Like a natural oh environment? <laughs> is there? Yeah. I mean, I assume was, there is, you know. The worst day, the worst day to do that piece because it was um, very stormy in Seattle area, uh, which is quite unusual. Usually, you know, it rains, but it's mo- mostly a drizzle. But it was, the weather was very turbulent and there was a lot of, uh, wind and heavy rain and then the the night was uh, also very bright because there was a lot of clouds in the sky and um so the moon was you know uh 
the moon, moon moonlight was diffused in these clouds and it was it was super bright so it was yeah it was it was very challenging circumstance and i don't do this type of pieces a lot um i'm pretty much a control freak so it's hard to be that when you're working outdoors uh but it's also fun yeah and it somewhat worked out yeah <laughs> so you you also have a series of skyscapes um mm-hmm. and i'm just curious what fascinates you so much about the sky mm. So I the approach to my to my work in in general is really based on the study of um innate human connection to nature biophilia hypothesis that was introduced by biologist Edward o. Wilson and uh, he talks a lot about how human beings have a innate instinct to connect emotionally with nature and living organisms, um, natural landscapes, natural light, natural change of light. So tapping into the innate and universal relationship people have with nature provides me as an artist with more understanding about what can compel people and what type of artistic content can truly be transformative. I'm also interested in creating somewhat democratic forms of art that many people can access. And I think almost everyone, you know, is has some kind of response to 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 nature and to you it's it's easier for me to 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 you know get in, into to to get a visceral uh, experience um uh, from uh, from uh, in people by using that um, that method, and um, I'm especially fascinated by the sky and the relationship we have with it because it's something that is always there. It's always changing. In a way, it's life itself that provides us with the atmosphere, and it's a gateway into the outer space. It's grand. It's symbolic. It's religious. I think it's gorgeous no matter what. Um, many of us consider it to be almost the only free space. And yet it's also very complicated. And I think it reflects a lot our relationship with nature and life itself. And it's actually politicized and controlled by air traffic and sometimes is invaded and polluted. And its significance is many time lost in plain sight. So there's so many things that I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by when it can, comes to sky, but all of the works that I have in some way um, are unpacking that relationship we have with it. And uh, I think the reason I keep on coming back to it is because when we actually look at it, it can activate our innate connection with nature and fellow humans to the degree that we can recognize unity with something greater than oneself. Uh, and um, that's what I keep on doing. Yeah, in, in looking for different ways to, to do that in all my works. I'm looking at this piece, The Skies Epitomized of War and Peace. Mm-hmm. And you're creating sort of the epitome of different skies or the skies in different locations. Yeah. How did that come about? And I, I noticed that you're also using machine learning to do this. So what's the connection there for you between fabricating skies yeah. or, or generalizing skies? 
Um, so four or five years ago, I did a art residency at Microsoft Research, and I met a machine learning computer scientist there, Nebusha Yoich, who is, was doing this um, epitomizing algorithms for various kinds of data. So he was just trying to see how can he epitomize, summarize meaningfully large amounts of data. So he would epitomize like cookbooks and um, different images and so on. And I thought like, I would love to know how actually other people see the sky. Cause like, I know how I see it, but it's something that's so hard to have, like, it's hard to have an access to other people's view of it. So we started by um, looking for images of the sky that were specific for um, a certain place or a climate. And uh, we would download images on internet. Uh, like I would just look for polar sky, for instance, and we would have thousands of images of polar sky uh, that we found on internet. And then this algorithm would um, go through them and analyze their properties and understand what are the um, uh, epitomes of, of those images, what are the shared characteristics and what are the crucial characteristics and almost paint a new image. So it wasn't a collage, it was a new, new image that was uh, using a brush that learned what's the what's the what's the essential uh, part of the of of all those images that it found on the internet. So I use this algorithm to also look at what's the epitome of the sky in the most uh, peaceful countries in the world, uh, such as Iceland and New Zealand. And mm, how, what is the sky like in the most conflicted countries in the world, such as Syria and um, Iraq? And um, this algorithm visualized the essence um, of really Internet's view of, of the sky in those places. And it ended up uh, showing this impressionistic, beautiful Aurora Borealis kind of skies in uh, Iceland and gorgeous blue skies in uh, New Zealand and then like khaki co colored uh, smoke filled uh, skies in Iraq and um, some weird mixture of Putin and Assad appearing in the clouds in Syria mixed with military aircraft and stuff like that. And it just was very interesting to me that that's the archetypal view of the sky according to the internet. And how, is, in how are these countries. different skies displayed? Like you, you kind of compose them into this sculptural form at the end. Did you choose to put one above the other or was it done by tone or how did you make that choice? Yeah, so... Yeah, the visualizations were printed on a backlit paper and I placed each visualization 
in a light box, in a plexiglass uh, box with uh, algorithmically programmed light um, that would change the appearance of all the skies as one might imagine they would change from sunrise to sunset. So th there was this shift in how they appeared through use of light and backlit uh, paper. And they were stacked there pretty narrow in format and long. And I stacked them to create like um, a piece where it's almost a mishmash of different skies that together they make a one um, colorful sky, sky space. Is it important for the viewer to know the location of each uh, snapshot of, of the sky? Yeah, I do find that this works. Um, I think they're um, very interesting images on their own and people like them on their own. They're somewhat impressionistic and have details that are curious. So it works on its own, but for me, the point is the meaning, uh, and they do require a little bit of that uh, information and insight. Um, yeah, and, I think so. And I, uh, yeah, is that piece uh, being shown currently? I'm just curious if I, I'd love to see it in person. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, you should come over. It's uh, right now. I, I have this studio slash gallery space um, where I make some of the smaller scale works and also show some of the works. And that piece is in, in the gallery, in my where, gallery. Where right is the now. gallery? In in Redmond, um, in Seattle area. Okay, nice. I'll let you know next time I'm out there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You're also working on a book, right, about the history of light in art. Um, how's that going? And what's been the most sort of interesting or surprising fact you stumbled upon while you're working on this mm. book? Yeah, the book has been a long time coming, and it's um, a result of my research of um, on, on light and art, um, which started during my ITP time, and I continue diving into the research during um, my um, digital arts and experimental media doctorate at UW, University of Washington. And uh, there I did a theory and practice-based research on transforming the poetic experience of space through light. And it focused on how we can um, manipulate senses through which space is experienced cognitively and emotionally and especially how we can use innovative, innovatively lighting and audiovisual technologies to engage people's perceptions, emotions, memories, and so on. And as an artist working with light, it was essential for me to understand light as a material as well as it, how it has been treated throughout the history. And I couldn't find a book or a class about it. So I researched a lot on my own and came across many examples of art that heavily relies on the use of light. Um, but there wasn't a lot of systemized analysis or interpretation of these works. And uh, so I did that. I did I did, did that on my own, and I am still doing that. I Whenever I do any work, I always do my research, and I try to understand what others did. I try to add value to a, something that has been done before. And uh, that has been for a while now in preparation 
to be published as a as a book, um, and it will list relevant artists and their approach to manipulating light um, in order to to shape what people see and feel. And uh, I think it's quite necessary resource to have, especially as we were talking in um, in in the age of increasing numbers of light art festivals and new media art events that integrate light. Um, so I think it's necessary to have an available reference of, of these iconic artworks that have been exemplifying the use of light in art. Um, and I'm especially interested in um, creating a resource for works uh, that have been done over the last hundred years to expand the artistic apparatus through light. And I found very interesting how one of the best examples uh, of that kind was actually uh, the first form of art and created 40,000 years ago. Um, I, you asked me what I consider what to be light art. I think light art for me is um, art that heavily relies on use of light. And you could say that all visual art relies on art. And I think all good visual artists have some sense of how they're, you know, using art, uh, light to, to get to their objective. Uh, but there are ones that are also like heavily using it. And I think uh, that has been the case in cave paintings. Mm -hmm. So for me, they're the form of first light art because if like we look at them like you know there's always this uh subject that repeats like there is a horse that repeats and it's a little bit you know offset and has a different position or there is a, a different animal but all like in motion and it's like that because it was meant to be viewed under a flickering fire. So you come into this cold, dark, um, natural environment, this cave, and you're carrying with your, I don't, you're, you're carrying your, your flickering torch and with the flickering torch, this, these images are becoming, um, animations. You can see horse in, in motion. It's running. Right, it's almost and like the original, like Edward Muybridge, uh, you know, totally. horse galloping yeah. film. It's an original video movie. I mean, and it's interesting so, too. I mean, kind of thinking about your first piece that you were talking about at the beginning of this podcast of the the tunnel, you know, creating this work mm -hmm. in this long dark tunnel, and now we're here back at caves at the end. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. as yeah. the original yeah. light work. Yeah, it's all it's all connected. And so, when does your book yeah. come out? Do you have a, a date yet? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, we were talking with some publishers and that took a turn. So now I'm looking for a new publisher uh, and it will depend on that. But um, the book is pretty ready. I actually decided to publish it in, in three parts. And the first part will be dedicated to the most recent history, the last hundred years. And then I'll, I'll be looking at... Um, 
I will I will do other parts of histories too throughout in in the other two two editions. Well, if you ever want to send me a secret copy, I'm super interested. In <laughs> yes, <it> <laughs> I would love to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, before we go, before we go today, because we have to wrap up here, we have a tradition yeah. of asking rapid fire questions on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are not about your work; they're just sort of you know kind of funny questions to get to know you better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So let's start off here with um, if you could eat dinner with one artist who's living or dead, who would it be? Mm. <laughs> the the well, only hitch is you have to eat dinner at the Museum of Ice Cream. That's no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Are we eating ice cream for dinner? If that's the case, that, that's not too bad. No, you can pick whatever uh, you want. Well, it would be interesting to eat dinner with one of those authors of cave paintings. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm so fascinated by their like intuitive knowledge, like of, you know, all these different elements when it comes to creating a full experience. Um, and I, and from living ones, I, I'm, I love the work of Katie Patterson. Hmm. And, um, I feel like I share similar sensibility Maybe you can so have like I, a dinner together with the cave painter in <laughs> this yeah, scenario. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. What, here's question number two. What's the most important file on your computer? The most important file. <laughs> it's a There's new question so I'm many. trying out here. What, what makes... If you could only file save one file important. on the computer, what would it be? Mm, right now, I have a file dedicated to... A baby I'm expecting. So I guess that comes to mind. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. That definitely makes sense. And are you, here's the last question. Are you afraid of anything? I'm afraid of many things. (laughs) (laughs) You know, a lot of people are afraid of the dark. Are you afraid of the dark? No, I'm not. I'm not afraid of the dark. I I love darkness. Um, No, no. yeah, I thought I was afraid of heights, but then I went skydiving and I loved it. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm afraid of. Um, I'm in such a happy place; nothing scares me right That's now. That's good. That's maybe you should just leave so, it there. I, for one, uh, will not yeah. be going skydiving anytime soon. So, <laughs> I told him, and then I did it, and yeah. it was one of the most interesting experiences I had in my life. It was sublime. Well, I will take your word for it. Uh, okay. <laughs> Maya, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been super great thank to talk you. to you. And we'll thank definitely you. we'll post um, some images of your work too. So check those out on the social uh, media. Great, great, wonderful. All right, we'll talk to you soon, Maya. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. That's great. Thanks for listening to another episode of State of the Art. I'm Gabe BC. You can always follow me at Gabe BC on pretty much every social media network. Uh, State of the Art is an at art production created by Ethan Appleby, who I think is in New York now. Ethan, I'm going to find you. Uh, Vanessa Wilson is our producer extraordinaire, who I've known for 1.5 years now. So uh, Vanessa, that's just the case of things. Uh, It hasn't been longer, even though it feels like it's been longer. Uh, And Weston Stevens is our audio engineer. Uh, Weston, please cut out some of this babbling on that I've been doing for the last, you know, 10 to 20 minutes. Okay, uh, we'll talk to you next week. We'll have a really exciting guest. So stay tuned and thanks for listening.